This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with Rob and Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Good evening, Rob. Well, good evening to you. Yes, we, we, we normally record uh, in the morning, but uh, we're recording in the, in the evening today um, for a, a very special reason, and uh, that is because we have a very special guest on the show tonight. Uh, Michael, could you please introduce our very special guest? Um. We are delighted to have Christopher Gidlow with us, an author and historian from the UK. Chris is the live interpretation manager at the Historic Royal Palaces and is currently, I believe, sitting in a bath in the Tower of London. Is that so, Chris? Uh, there's there's no reason to say otherwise. I'm actually in my I'm in my office, which is between the walls of the uh, Tower of London. So uh, it's actually built into a 13th century part of the fortifications, and, with a nice skylight in the roof. But fortunately, and it has I, nice thick walls because I understand that today is the hottest day since records were kept in the UK. Is that right? Yeah, we're at a very cool 37 degrees centigrade here. It's not the hottest day ever, but it's the hottest July since the 17th century. Oh, wow. So, Chris, tell us, um, your live interpretation manager, what, what does that mean? Well, basically, at uh, Tower of London and uh, Hampton Court Palace and Kensington Palace, I put on events that recreate the past. So uh, when Henry VIII took over Hampton Court Palace from Cardinal Wolsey, at the moment we're doing what happened uh, just before the coronation of Queen Anne Boleyn at, Hampton, at uh, the Tower. So that when visitors come here, they have the option of stepping back and experiencing the palace in a kind of total recall kind of way. Wow. So this is um this is something that's a little bit akin to civil war reenacting in a way, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we don't have much cause to put on the uh, the American Civil War at the palaces. Um, <laughs> we have done uh, we have done eighteen sixty three with Queen Victoria coming to visit, of course. But it's a subject that's very close to my heart. Um, so close to your heart, Chris, that I I know that uh, long ago when you were married. Um, you didn't you didn't dress up in the things that you would often wear at the uh, Tower of London, but you did dress up in slightly more modern dress for your wedding. Yes, actually, here here on my desk to jog my memory is one of my wedding photos, uh, which shows my lovely wife in a Scarlet O'Hara red uh, red velvet dress over a crinoline, and me in my Union Colonel from uh, eighteen sixty three uniform. My, my goodness. Um, can, can I just ask, why did you choose a colonel's uniform? Was, was that particularly natty or, um, or, you, or you didn't feel up to choosing a general's? 
Uh, no, we actually we copied a surviving example, and generally the best examples of surviving uniforms tend to be the better quality ones the uh, officers wore. And this was one uh, that a staff officer who had been a full colonel, uh, his descendants had preserved. So the historical costumier was actually able to look at that and fit it together, and we got all of the uh, accoutrements for it. Well, well that, that's a very good answer to that, because, of course, you see, I, I think I would have been inclined to be, you know, you know, field Marshal, uh, Commandante, <laughs> um, Generalissimo, Admiral of the Fleet. But no, that, that, that's an excellent answer as to why um, why a full colonel's uniform um, was um, was used. And, and I also believe, because Michael's told me, that um, um, everybody who came to your wedding had to had to also be dressed in, in Union Civil War dress. Is that correct? Um, they were given the option, so there were there were a few um, English uh, generals turned up, but yes, mainly people turned up looking very gone with the wind. Oh, that's <laughs> fantastic. Chris, I don't know if you saw, but um, earlier this year we went to something called the Buccaneers Ball. And yes. It, and it was a, re- a recreation of a ball held 150 years ago for the officers of the Shenandoah in the goldfield city of ballarat and rob and i uh we actually went in civilian dress but uh i like to think we did a very fine job rob don't you think well there's there's nothing like a top hat to make a man feel like a victorian gentleman and uh yes and and i I also i also grew grew whiskers for the occasion which i i kept for some months until my um my physiotherapist told me that i shouldn't take pick anything out of a garbage bin with my whiskers or, or I might be it might be misinterpreted as to whether I was living on the streets so um, I, I went home from that and shaved the whiskers off which is perhaps a bit of a I shame. thought they were putting too much strain on your back all that extra weight. <laughs> well p- possibly also yeah, yeah. I, I actually uh, thought we, we had an earlier discussion uh, Chris um, about the very bad beards in the movie Gettysburg um, the, 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 the fake beards. I thought the uniforms were good, but the fake beards. There, there is there's the severe dressing down that Robert E. Lee gives to uh, Jeb Stewart, which kind of begins. Are you wearing that beard for a, for a bet, Jeb? <laughs> yeah. And does Jeb then go? No, but I have brought 150 wagons, and, and Lee says, "Well, Did that you... does not overcome the badness of your beard." Yeah. I was going to say, at least they did have them, though. Uh, Hollywood generally didn't like it. So, for example, um, Bromhead and Chard, uh, the defenders of Rourke's Drift, in photographs have got huge beards. Uh, but for the film Zulu, they're completely clean-shaven. Uh, Burt Lancaster and his cast for Gunfight at the OK Corral are completely clean-shaven, although all the photographs of uh, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday shown with these great big walrus moustaches. So I was quite pleased that Gettysburg um, didn't just choose clean-shaven people, but probably they could have gone to something other than kind of the latest broom supplier or <laughs> they bought them off. Well, m- mind you, I do believe the number of historical inaccuracies in, in Zulu are, are completely legion. And um, and especially the... Uh, I'm afraid I forget his name. But, You're going to um, tell us we lost. The, one, the, the, um, the British soldier who was portrayed as a drunk... And, and and he only broke into the um to the hospital to to get to get liquor and and save save his his friends. Um, his his daughters actually turned up to the premiere because it was only about eighty or ninety years afterwards, and, and they were terribly disappointed because he was a lifelong teetotaler. <laughs> There's Hollywood for you. <laughs> and, and I also believe a number of the Zulus could be seen wearing watches. So. 
well, they had to know what time to attack. <laughs> so, Chris, if, if we if we go to um, you're you're an Englishman. You work in the historic royal palaces, but you say you 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 had a, a had a long standing interest yes. in the American Civil War. Where did that come from? Well, one of the things about it is it's a uh, Napoleonic style war so I was always interested in the Napoleonic wars but it's a war in which both sides are English speakers and both sides because of the high education rate in the uh, in America in the mid uh, 19th century were literate so you can actually read right down to privates in both sides of their experience it gives a real immediacy to that war and I think it's also the first uh, heavily photographed war although there are no uh, photographs of um, battles in action because photography took too long to expose in that point you do actually get uh, photographs that are taken under fire you get uh, the people uh, um, standing doing their own work rather than just posed in studios which gives a uh, i always found a it was it gave a sense of realism to it which the earlier conflicts didn't have and this is like the uh, famous photographs of matthew brady for example Yes, exactly. Um, Brady's photographs, um, although they're in every single book that you would see now about the American Civil War, um, they nobody was interested in them uh, by the time they hit 1870. And a lot of them, the glass negatives were being used uh, for conservatives and uh, greenhouses. Oh, really? And they were totally <laughs> rediscovered and then became the prints that you see in all of the books. What, because someone someone was growing their prize-winning tomatoes and then happened to yeah. notice... Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> well, I mean, we're not particularly interested in um, you know, great, great characters of the late 1970s and their military exploits, so we don't want to keep their photographs uh, around. And the same was true of the American Civil War. It was only subsequently where they thought, Brady's done something that no, one, no one's thought of. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, you know, I had a, a similar uh, experience with the idea that this is a, or in fact, American history in, in general is a history that you can look at the primary sources in the language that I just happen to speak and read, which makes it fascinating. <laughs> yes. So, for example, I, I, I'm quite interested in late medieval history and Byzantine history, but unfortunately I don't read Byzantine Greek, which means I can't go to the primary sources for that, whereas you can, of course, for, uh, for American history and, and Australian history too, by the way. So, yes, you can, for example, this is my limit of Australian history, read Ned Kelly in his original words. You can actually look at the, at the testament that he wrote down which, mm-hmm. if you want, if you're interested in Robin Hood, you're stuck because you're looking at things <laughs> written in Norman French and uh, medieval Latin. Of course, with the story of the Shenandoah, Chris, this is where Australian history and American history intersect. <laughs> yes, because we have the uh, Shenandoah visiting Australia before it goes off to its exploits. Now, so at the moment, 150 years ago. We've got the Shenandoah up in the Bering Sea, and it just last week managed to capture some uh, 11 whalers. Ah. Um, the big problem, of course, for them is uh, the Civil War officially ended about four weeks before that. So it's a shame their best work was, was all ahead of them <laughs> after the war ended. Although the whole history of 
world could have been different. Yes. <laughs> well, although it was interesting that um, uh, when they were up in the Bering Sea, uh, one of the reasons that some of the Confederate, uh, the, the Union ships didn't run away from them was that they thought that they were a Union warship sent up to survey for the telegraph. So if that had happened just a few years earlier, then they could, could have got up there, been told that the war was over, and then just come home again. <laughs> which is which is why we wouldn't be up to episode 37 of our <laughs> podcast. It probably would have been up to episode two. <laughs> well, <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, so Chris, um, there was something interesting that we were uh, talking about when we were... Uh, talking about this to, to set up our discussion and that was the battle flag on the Shenandoah and uh, what is often done wrong in uh, historical accounts well yes the um, the afterlife of the confederate flag is a whole different story so we're sitting in the midst of a whole lot of tear down that flag not my flag uh, controversy uh, which really centres around a flag that never was the flag of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. It's an absolutely beautiful design that I think most people around the world would recognise. This is uh, the uh, Stars and Bars, right? Uh, it's no, it's it's uh, again popularly, popularly and incorrectly known as the stars oh, and bars. It, okay. It's a red uh, rectangular uh, flag with a uh, diagonal blue cross with white edges on it. Uh, that cross has got thirteen stars, one in the centre and uh, three on each arm. You'll recognise it on the roof of the Robert E. Lee, the uh, car of the Dukes of Hazard. You'll see it on the backs of Rockabilly. It's a beautiful design, often known as the uh, stars and bars and was never the flag of anywhere. Um, it was flown on the front of the Shenandoah. It was um, uh, flown as the Jack uh, when the Shenandoah was in port. Mm -hmm. So it, it did exist as a flag, uh, but it wasn't a national flag, and it wasn't the great big flag that flew off the back of the, the Shenandoah. And this would be known as the Naval Ensign, is that right? Yes, um, the Confederacy, like a lot of states, but unlike uh, the United Kingdom, uh, had as its naval ensign its national flag. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States also has its naval ensign, its national flag. Uh, and that was an absolute disaster of a flag. Oh, why is that? Well, it was a flag designed by committee, and I point the finger at uh, it was a committee called the Committee of the Flag and Seal of the Confederate States of America that was about the first Confederate body that was set up in 1861. They wanted to get their priorities right. Oh, they've got to get, yes, yes. <laughs> Setting up a new and, country, and you need your flags. The committee sat together and they said, we're going to have a write-in. So uh, if you're a Confederate, write-in and give your, your design for a flag. This is always a bad idea. <laughs> and uh, then they handed over the, the answer to a, a, a male artist called Nicola Marshall, whose job it was to come up with the flag that the write-in... Uh, um, confederates had sent in and basically the confederates had this idea that they were americans they were not going to uh, flinch from that they were americans they were the inheritors of the american revolution they wanted the kind of flag that george washington and the revolutionary troops had carried uh, they wanted a flag that was mainly uh, red and white uh, horizontal lines stripes mm -hmm. uh, with a in the top uh, corner a 
blue canton with uh, white stars representing the number of states that were in the Confederacy, and uh, that is what Nicola Marshall designed, and that is the actual stars and bars, the original oh, national flag okay. of the Confederate states. And because this would have been this would have been how many stars would have it had in its first? Well, they, they increased they increased according <laughs> to the uh, the size of the Confederacy. So eventually, there were thirteen stars. In so the, it would have uh, started the, with about seven, I would say. Yeah, it started with seven. It went up to thirteen. Uh-huh. Now, I put it to you, gentlemen, if you saw that flying off the back of a warship at distance, and you're looking at it through your binoculars, you have simply got to try and work out how many stripes it has, how many stars it has, whether it's the United States or the Confederate States. And by the time you've counted the, hang on, there's not quite as many stars as I'm expecting, or there's fewer bars, you've been, you're under attack. You've been sunk. <laughs> it, there would be a similar situation if Australia ever declared war on New Zealand. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Um, the same kind of idea influenced this flag design for the two neighbouring countries. And uh, obviously, on a black powder battlefield, you've got the same problems of visibility. People are flying the stars and bars, all the stars and stripes, and you can't tell. And so every army on land in the Confederacy came up with its own design. Uh, so um, Bishop Leonidas Polk, who was the um, Bishop of uh, Anglican Bishop of Louisiana, simply used his bishop's Episcopal flag as a general for the Confederacy. We, we, we talked uh, about uh, Bishop Polk actually last week or the week before, and uh, he had a few very unfortunate episodes in his general's career. Well, like being killed, for example. Yeah, that... <laughs> Yes, but before that, during a test of a cannon, he had all his clothes blown off in a misfire, <laughs> which which must have been rather embarrassing too. <laughs> so sorry, anyway, Bishop Polk. Yes, go on. Oh, sorry, he, he was just an incidental because the 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 best design. Uh, actually, the, the the one of the members of the committee came up for this. Robert E. Lee, Robert E. Lee, uh, commanding the Army of Northern Virginia, said this stars bars an absolute disaster. Can you come up with something that anyone can recognise? And so his army used a square flag, a, a square red flag with a, a, a diagonal um, cross in blue with thirteen white stars in it and a, and a white. Uh, border around it and that's called the battle flag of the army of northern virginia mm-hmm. and it's the the origin of the kind of tear down the confederate flag flag that that was carried at the battle battles of gettysburg all those big uh, victories uh, for the southern confederacy it wasn't the recognizable flag but it's got the clear elements that you'd recognize they called it the southern cross um, because of the Southern Cross uh, constellation that's just visible uh, from the, the bottom of the Confederacy, the same as the Australian and New Zealand Southern Cross. Mm. Um, but the Confederate battle flag is a, a modern term that's used for it. And was that, that was actually a square shape too, wasn't it? Rather yeah, than... so it's a square. It look, looks quite odd, but obviously it was, it was less cumbersome to have a square on, the, on a battlefield than it was to have a, a flag-shaped flag, and you could churn them out in, in uh, quite large numbers. Mm-hmm. So anyway, let's come back to the uh, committee for the, uh, the flag and seal. <laughs> okay. Uh, May 1863, they're now getting a whole lot of people saying, your flag design is really rubbish.
And indeed, we will come back uh, with, with Chris, Chris Gidlow um, next week. Um, back to the committee that is um, <laughs> spending the dying days of the Confederacy, making sure that they have a good flag. Important work. Very important work. Well, I, I guess eventually when, when it does come time for them to surrender, you need to have a good flag to surrender with, although, yeah, not one that's white, perhaps. Spoilers, Rob. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll finish that fascinating discussion next week with Chris. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to him. And, and, I, and I wonder how many podcasts have been recorded within the walls of the Tower of London. I think that's... Especially uh, about the American Civil War. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 there's probably been quite a few recorded um, about English history. Perhaps but... about the English Civil War. <laughs> yeah. So we, we better just do a quick update, though, Rob, about uh, where what, the Shenandoah is this week. What, what is happening uh, with the Shenandoah um, 150 years ago today? Well, of course, um, they, are, they are still in the, in the Bering Sea across the, uh, the coast of what is, uh, what is uh, what's then and now Alaska, although I, I think it was about to become uh, American soil uh, very shortly after the, the Shenandoah was there. And um, the last week, well, a, a couple of rather interesting things um, happened um, in the last week, uh, 150 years ago today. Um, and the first one, um, Michael, was um, they had a bit of an encounter with um, an almost immovable object. Would you? Yes. If you remember, the captain and the first officer, Mr Whittle, were very reluctant to go further north because of the problems with sea ice. Whittle is, in fact, spending the night of July the 2nd in his bunk dreaming of hitting ice and he has such a premonition that he gets up and goes on to deck and asks the officer of the watch who is uh, Mr Smith Lee yes the uh, relative of General Lee who's quite busy back at Appomattox (laughs) it was a few weeks ago and Mr Smith Lee says no uh, Mr Grimble and I who was on the watch before me we've seen nothing all is clear um, so great, greatly relieved, <clears throat> Mr Whittle goes down to put on a warm jacket, because it's quite cold, and as he is actually putting his jacket on, there is a huge thump. A, a, a huge... Well, at, at least, you know, um, he had a warm coat on. When, when he did, a... so they've hit ice, oh. even though uh, apparently everything was clear. And they hit it quite badly. Um, it made the ship shudder greatly. And, in fact, they put their mats down at the front again, and, you know, we, again, we like to think that, <laughs> that is the fancy carpets they took off that uh, ship that had the nice furniture on to try and prevent damage, and the ship struck heavily again. This time, the rudder chain broke. That, that doesn't sound good. That is really bad because it, it actually means, of course, you can't steer. Mm. Mm. So... This is how desperate the situation got. They had to send out the boats and they grappled with ropes to allow... um, Mr. Whittle describes it as a large cake. I think he means a large iceberg. Flow. flow. A large ice flow. They actually chained the ship to a large ice flow and then grappled or winched her round so that uh, she headed in the direction they needed to get away. And they had to do that twice. In the meantime, using oars and poles uh, to keep the ice clear while they were trying to get steam up so they could get away. So this was a very, very desperate situation. Exactly the situation that they turned around and started steaming 
south for to prevent. Yes, well, that, that, that's exactly right. And um, now, um, Mitchum and Mason also, of course, uh, covers the same incident, although um, uh, he seems to think it's on Saturday, July the 1st. But, you know, I think we'll probably defer to the executive officer on that one. So um, this morning at one o'clock, the ship was under top gallant sails. I, I do love the way Mason always says what, uh, what sails they're on before anything happens. Um, having stopped steaming last night, thick fog and going along six knots, the lookout cried, ice right ahead, and in five minutes, before the men could get to the braces, we were into it and stuck, struck several severe blows on the stem. Hove everything aback when the ship, of course, got stern board on her and struck a tremendous cake of ice astern, which carried away the rudder chains, but fortunately did not injure the rudder itself. Finally, we furled all stale and commenced heaving through the ice, all hands were called on deck. There was some excitement at first. Some of the men thought the ship was stove and were getting their bags. Oh, dear. Uh, that's pretty <laughs> bad. The next thing they do is they break into the... Uh, to the uh, yeah, yeah, yes, of course. So they, 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 this was master in command, and the next thing they do would be to break into the liquor store so they could dry, die drunk. Um, lowered a boat and ran lines out, making them fast to large cakes of ice and hauling the ship ahead in this manner. At the same time, got up steam. About five o'clock, we were out of the scrape and steaming slow ahead. Oh, and of course, something very nautical here. After splicing the main brace, I turned the... You know, I, I think that's actually the first time I've seen splicing the main brace, you know, used unironically and, and, and literally. Um, all this morning, however, we are working our way slowly through large fields of ice, and this was very large and thick, much more formidable than any we have yet met with, even in the Arctic Ocean itself. Ooh. So, yes, so they turned away to avoid the ice and instead ran into a lot more of it. And... You did actually have the dates right. That was on the uh, the night of the first. Um, the next day, they got themselves into some fog. And I think there's two very interesting things that happened here. One is, it was a Sunday, so they continued to uh, read the articles of war. Oh, of course, yes. So, yes. still yet again, they are convinced that the war is there to be won. They did notice a sail, but... Um, it got away in the fog, which is a bit sad. And by Sunday, the 3rd of July, they were uh, very much steaming towards the Pacific. And uh, as Whittle says here, uh, they shall hail it with joy when they see it because they're very keen to get away from this ice. I think, yeah, I, th- I think um, yeah, in, in an extreme clipper... Um, any time spent in the uh, in, in the Arctic or near the Arctic Ocean is uh, is, is more than enough. Uh, but um, uh, so that was on on the first of July, and of course, uh, shortly after the the first of July, um, every year, if you're American, there's the fourth of July. Well, that's the second and third habit, yes, but <laughs> very true. And this is a this is a fourth of July, which well, there's a, quite a bit of introspection here from. From Whittle, it's one uh, of his longer entries. Is, is it introspection in, in the way that he had his introspection on the nature of war uh, last week that, that finally ended up with burn them all, or is it, uh, yeah? Mm, well, he's saying this is the 4th of July. Who can celebrate it? Can the northern people 
who now are and for four years have been waging an unjust, cruel and relentless and inhuman war upon us to take from us the very independence, the declaration of which 90 years ago made this a day to be gloried in. Can they glory in the day? Have they the barefaced audacity when five of the original 13 are now battling against more grievous wrongs? Um, so, I, I don't think 90 years ago has quite the same ring as four score years and ten. <laughs> and also, I, I think spoilers are... Yes, in fact, they, they are celebrating. Yes, well, he does have here to say, yes, they have the audacity. <laughs> Their honour, honesty, Christianity, civilization is all gone. They blush at nothing except that which may be honest and honourable. And in their own acts, they rarely blush for even these causes. O oh God, meet out confusion and discord to their counsels. He then goes on, and um, I think if he jumped in a time machine and came to uh, July the 4th, 2015, he'd be a little bit surprised because he says, um, I, for one, would regret from the depth of my heart that we ever knew a 4th of July for tomorrow. I would rather be ruled over by the president of Liberia than the Yankees. Oh. So I think he's saying that he'd rather see a black president than uh, be ruled over by the Yankees. Well, uh... (laughs) So if he he came into a time machine today, he'd, he'd get a little bit of a surprise. He also then goes on, and I think this is this is the point I think a lot of Southerners reached in the war when you have to scratch your head and say, what was the point? Um, he actually says, let us free and arm our slaves. Let every old man, every young woman in the South be armed. Let their principle and practice and cry be to shoot dead the invader whenever and wherever he be found, putting their trust in the justice of an almighty, all-powerful and all-just God. The God of Jacob is our refuge, uh, and, and I think I think we said last week that, or perhaps the week before, that when you when you get to say the the God of Jacob is our refuge, the the next point is saying, and now let's sing abide with me. Yes, it, yes, yes. Which, given the icebergs a couple of days ago, <laughs> might have been oh, would, would have been quite quite on topic. Yes, but I, I think when you're getting to the point where you're saying we need to arm the slaves to. Uh, uh, war, in the, the immortal words of Bruce Springsteen, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Yes. yes. Oh, dear. So I think they've, they've reached the point of their despond. They're now heading back to the Pacific. So the so there to take the war in a, in a whole new different direction. But we're going to end up today because we've got the second part of the Chris Gidlow uh, discussion for next week. Yes, yes. I'm continuing the story of the... Um, the Rather large number of Confederate flags, yes, which, which, is, which and the is, committees that had to decide which ones were going to be used. Which I, I have to say, I think is, is is perhaps almost the most topical podcast we've had, given that that people are now tearing down Confederate flags in the uh, in but the are in they the tearing south? down the correct one. Oh, that's what we'll find out next week. They should, on they should put up the correct ones and then tear them down. But anyway, yes, we we will talk about that again uh, next week uh, but uh, for this week this has been um, Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Wild with a Robin Mob I'm Rob and I'm Mob Tally Ho and Ahoy <laughs>